Okay, well, we'll go ahead and get started. Uh, it's 12.01 now, and I want to welcome everyone to Colloquium. We're meeting virtually this week, uh, and Jill will be introducing our speaker, Kirsty, in just a minute. Um, we have a few announcements, uh, again, mostly that... Um, Patty, can you move the slide for the welcome to um, DAG Biofuse Miner? There we go. Thank you. So if anyone is interested in doing the um, GES Miner Fellowship, the deadline is 315. It's quite a generous fellowship, um, $17,000 plus tuition and fees. So, um, you know, apply soon. And then uh, can you forward to the uh, announcement? Yes, that. And we just want to highlight that NC State has been named a Fulbright Top Producing Institution. And four members of the GES community um, are included um, in, in those honors. Jason Delborn, uh, Jabina Maud, who is an Ag Biofuse uh, Fellow, and then Nora Hahn and Jean Restino as well. So just wanted to highlight that and uh, so everyone is aware of um, the good things that are happening. And then, uh, Patty, yep. Also, we want to draw your attention to the student blogs for this semester. So we had the first one posted by Nolan um, this past week covering the previous um, colloquium by Grace Weidrich. And uh, it's a really good summary, uh, so we'd like for you to read that uh, on the GES website. And then we will also be having um, weekly uh, blogs by students throughout the semester discussing the colloquium that um, have been presented. Okay, does anyone else have... Oh, and then uh, this week, Chris Gillespie, who is an Ag Biofuse student, who is joining us today, is defending... Chris, can you um, unmute and tell us when your defense is? Yes, indeed. My defense will be at 9 a.m. on Thursday, February 22nd in Gardner Hall, room 2321. You're all welcome to attend. I may even have some refreshments and some wonderful breakfast foods. Okay. Well, for 9 a.m. defense, that would be nice. <laughs> so congratulations, early congratulations there. Uh, okay, Patty, uh, is there... I think that was all of the ones that we had. Does anyone uh, who's online have any announcements to share? Okay, if not, um, Jill uh, will be introducing our speaker today. So Jill, go ahead. All right, thank you. Um, Kirsty Weising is a research fellow at Australia National University and a visiting scientist at the Commonwealth Scientific and Industrial Research Organization, CSIRO. Um, which is Australia's national science agency. Previously, she's been a member of CSIRO's Synthetic Biology Future Science Platform and the Advanced Engineering Biology Future Science Platform. She has trained as an anthropologist and her research considers indigenous and customary values, relationships with and resource responsibility for tangible and intangible environments in Australia and Ghana. Her work considers cross-cultural approaches to environmental disasters, such as flooding, invasive species incursions, and biodiversity loss. In this presentation, Kirsty seeks to bring scholars and practitioners of synthetic biology into dialogue with Torres Strait Islanders 
perspectives to consider cultural implications for future island-bound applications of genetic biocontrol technologies, such as gene drive. But if you can somehow snag a virtual coffee date with Kirsty um, or in person, I was lucky enough to meet her at uh, both at NC State and 4S in Hawaii this year. I have no doubt it'll be worth your time. Um, many of you here would be interested in her extensive research background, working on indigenous land ownership, biocultural knowledge, synthetic biology, disaster solutions, cultural heritage protection, uh, the list goes on, water and other natural resource rights and the extractive industry, ritual, religion, and theater. So please join me in extending a warm welcome to Dr. Weising as she presents her talk, Indigenous Perspectives on Synthetic Biology for Conservation. Thanks for the very comprehensive welcome, um, Jill. Really appreciate it. And thank you very much to Jen and Dawn and Patty and others involved in running this series as well. Um, I'm assuming everybody can hear me all right. Great, thank you. Um, so yeah, it's a real pleasure to be able to be presenting virtually. I had I was lucky to visit um, GES in person last year in October. So I've met a few people and see a few familiar names online as well. Um, but it's, it's great to be following up with a bit more of a comprehensive discussion through the presentation. Um, as mentioned, uh, Jill, Rex and others coordinated a um, panel at 4S. Uh, so some of you might be familiar with some of this work, but I'll try and add a little bit more. Happy to go more into detail and depth at the end as well. And for some of you, it will be brand new. So very happy to be talking, talking through things as well. So today uh, I'll be talking about Indigenous perspectives on synthetic biology within the Australian context in particular. Um, uh, Katie Barnhill kindly presented, provided this uh, information last year when I asked what the protocol is regarding acknowledging uh, land within North Carolina State Uni area and within the US more broadly as a as an outsider. Um, so it's really wonderful to see that NC State University is um, respectfully acknowledging the lands within the surrounding present day Raleigh and the traditional homelands and gathering places of many of the indigenous peoples um, within this area as well. And I too acknowledge that it's, I've been lucky to visit this area um, and that's where most of you are meeting today. I'd also like to acknowledge the Nungal and Yambri uh, peoples and their country where I'm speaking from today in Canberra, which is the capital of Australia, as well as to acknowledge the traditional owners of the Torres Strait, where I've been lucky to do work for this project. In particular, people from the Kulkargal Nation, which is the central part of the Torres Strait, and I can point to a map after. This map that I'm showing at the moment is from the Australian Institute of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Studies, it's based on information around different language groups across Real the country. Kirsty, we don't have your slides up. Ah, okay. That would be really helpful. Let me see if I can share screen again. Thank you. That would, how are we going now? Looks great, thank you. Excellent, thank you. That's a really useful thing to do. So I was just explaining um, this acknowledgement from NC State uh, University, which might be familiar to some people already. And I'm happy to go back at the end if you would like. And then the map that I was referring to within the Australian context uh, is a map that looks at different language groups and, and sort of 
um, associated territories across Australia. So it's very small, but the point is to try and emphasise that there's a huge amount of diversity within the Australian context. So when we're talking about Indigenous Australian perspectives, it does have to get down to that local level as well. Final little bit of acknowledgement, I am now a research fellow at the Australian National University based in Canberra. I'm looking at um, disaster solutions around floods uh, and Aboriginal perspectives around water cultural values and flood mitigation. However, this is a particular project that I did at CSIRO, which only concluded last month. So this was funded, as um, Jill mentioned, uh, in association with the Synthetic Biology Future Science Platform, which uh, then concluded and the Advanced Engineering Future Science Platform had begun and it's also been funded by the Environment Business Unit. I'll do a list of thank yous at the end, but just a quick shout out to my supervisors. Aditi Mankad might be familiar to some on the line, Kirsten McLean and Marcus Barber. Very much to my Torres Strait Islander colleague, Torres Webb, who was critical for providing cultural advice for the project and a lot of community engagement. And to Rob Spate and Claudia Vickers as the um, current and past directors of Advanced Engineering Biology and SynBio FSP. Right, to get into it. Within and beyond Australia, a disaster is unfolding in the form of invasive species incursions. Their impact on native species is, as Shepard and Glansnick note, quote, worse than habitat destruction and climate change. As biodiversity hotspots, islands are critical to conservation, and yet, as island conservation note, Islands are also extinction epicenters for reptile, bird, amphibium, and mammals, with invasive species being implicated in 86% of all recorded extinctions. Carter et al. note that current techniques for pest control, including poisoning, shooting, trapping, mustering, creating fences, and other approaches, are often reactive and may not prevent or manage new incursions. There are also welfare concerns for targeted and incidental non-targeted animals using current techniques. Looking to the future, genetic biocontrols, including gene drives, have a potential to halt invasive species or conversely, to boost a species population whose existence is threatened. Gray et al note that synthetic biology or symbio for short involves application of engineering principles to biology, making it possible for biological systems or bits thereof to be built to design. Amongst other potential applications, Symbio proposes to manage invasive species at scale and in more targeted humane ways by engineering something called a gene drive. A gene drive is a preferential biased pattern of inheritance of a particular gene that is said to drive through generations of a population according to the Gene Convene Virtual Institute. For example, as shown in this PowerPoint slide, an engineered drive may preference a single sex for all offspring of a target pest species, which could, over generations, radically reduce the pest population through suppressed breeding. So on the slide, you can see on the left of that diagram, which says normal inheritance, you've got approximately a 50-50 chance of offspring being male or female in a species population, in this case cats. On the right-hand side, where there's a gene drive, which is preferencing a single-sex offspring, male in this case, you can see that over generations, it cuts out the female, female population, which reduces breeding, 
breeding opportunities, particularly in a small space. So that crashes a population just through lack of breeding opportunities through generations. I've also popped on the left-hand side a QR code to an animation that CSIRO created. Um, Aditi's team, as well as Owen Edwards, was in discussion that talks a little bit about gene drives. It's three minutes if people want to have a look at that later as well. While gene drives introduce a range of new risks and cultural considerations, they also potentially promise, quote, quicker, easier, more cost-effective ways to control species at large scales than current techniques. That's a quote from Shevard and Glanzing. This technology is in the research and design stage, currently housed in tightly controlled laboratory settings. Any future development will be subject to regulatory approvals, but Symbio and other scientists are already considering what, where and how field trial testing may occur in the future. Surrounded by water, islands perceived boundedness has led to ideas of project containment or watertight field sites of sorts. Relatedly, gene drive trial discussions have become rather island bound. Ballard and Anjik have described islands as classical sites for colonization, as well as social and scientific experiments, being ripe for research as, they say, quote, natural laboratories. This scientific legacy seems to continue in a gene drive conversations today. Harvey Samuel Adel explained that in quote, in order to maximize containment and efficacy, small isolated islands are ideal locations for the first trials of gene drives. This is because as Giris Adel argue, quote, islands can provide a natural geographical barrier to unintentional spread. International alliances such as the Genetic Biocontrol of Invasive Rodents Group, which I know some of their um, GES uh, community are a part of, or GBIRD for short, have also identified islands as likely sites for first gene drive trials. But what happens when a cross-cultural Indigenous lens is applied to gene drive research? How might Indigenous understandings complicate and or contribute to symbioconcepts of project containment in geographic and other terms? So while the regional location of future gene drives is not yet known, my Torres Strait Islander colleague, Torres Webb, and I have begun to have initial discussions about gene drives with traditional owners, community residents, and indigenous and environmental organizations in the Torres Strait, which is, this is situated between Papua New Guinea and mainland Australia. It's an environment which is rich in biodiverse islands and peoples of cultural authority, knowledge, and diversity. And yet the region is experiencing and or at risk of negative impacts by invasive species, including feral cats, rodents, mosquitoes, pigs, and horses, to name a few. As such, it's a key area of biosecurity interest and maybe one of the range of areas in Australia where gene drives could have effect in the future. In this region, sea orients identities and connects and curates kin relationships within and beyond Australia into Papua New Guinea. So sea is seen as culturally and economically really critical to this part, even more so than land. This complicates symbio concepts of islands as isolated sites, but cross-cultural complications are necessary and well overdue. Before considering bioengineered futures any further, let's take a look in the rearview mirror. Writing about Indigenous Australians' perspectives on invasive species, Trigger et al. point out that, quote, scientific discourses on nature are necessarily set within historic cultural contexts and are thereby produced by more than solely rational evaluations of environmental facts. So all our research sits within this larger legacy and context. As part of Gene Dry Future, Symbio and other scientists should also acknowledge settler colonial legacies, 
in which invasive species were introduced and in which conservation efforts exist today, sometimes neglecting the longest residing occupants in an environment. So Jessica Catalino, who's an American anthropologist who works in the Everglades, um, has called us to look at settler colonial influences and do what she calls unsettling nature. This, she explains, is by insisting on agency, governance and scientific participation of Indigenous peoples, whose long-term experience with invasive and native species and whose sovereign authority over environmental governance on their territories should inform and delimit non-Indigenous management practices. So what she's kind of doing is talking about this, and she's playing on this idea of settling and settler colonial spaces and how to unsettle and kind of undo some of the work and the power dynamics that have come about that in environmental governance spaces. I think it's also interesting to look at the idea of unsettling uh, nature in the context of synthetic biology, which is very much looking to edit, unsettle or change something particularly um, in the environment conservation space as well. In the Australian setting, an unsettling of nature has happened in the context of the courts. Noteworthily, through the 1992 Mabo decision in Australia's High Court, which saw the concept of terra nullius, that's empty land, which was the premise for British colonialism, overturned. And following on from this, a national act called the Native Title Act was established in 1993. This acknowledges Indigenous Australians' relationships to, as well as rights and interests in, various lands and waters across the continent. The Native Title Act complements various state and territory legislation that also acknowledges the rights and interests of Australia's first peoples, albeit to varying degrees of effect. So there's some states where it's really strong, like the Northern Territory, which is the, the territory that you can see there that's mainly got the yellow, um, but in other areas it's, it's not as strong and the rights to negotiate development or to protect sacred sites on land are, are, less, are less sort of rigid as in the Northern Territory. While an unsettling of uh, the initial concept of colonial claim to what is now Australia has and continues to incur, an unsettling of science is also happening. Some Simbo and other scientists that I've spoken with are actively trying to acknowledge settler colonial legacies and unsettle nature. On this point, uh, Indigenous scholars heard it, I'll have some sage words for the settler colonial researcher seeking to recover. They write, many scientists working on natural systems do so from a place of love for and connection with the natural world, yet can unknowingly inherit from colonial sciences ways of working which are harmful to Indigenous peoples. Scientists must ask, how, do we, how does engaging with the natural world solely as an object hinder our understanding and engagement with relational ethics and Indigenous ways of being and knowing? So they, they talk in this article around the idea of these other species or other items like natural elements like water or other things being like family. And so what does scientific practice do if you're working with a material or with an item that is seen as akin to humans as well? To undo the influence of colonialism, science should strive to be more inclusive and open to alternate ontological worldviews based on long-term experience in and reciprocal relations to certain environments. As a national science agency, CSIRO has and continues to consider what scientific research may mean for Indigenous Australians on their terms and for their purposes, or as the image on the top right notes, our knowledge, our way, which was a, um, 
really important book produced through CSIRO and other other collaborators on Indigenous ways of leading and caring for environment and country. They're also considering what other types of science can learn from Indigenous ways of engaging with the world, so a two-way consideration. There's a, um, in some of the website material from CSIRO, they talk about Indigenous scientists as Australia's first scientists, noting this really long-term relationship, this observation, this engagement with the environment, environment and techniques of managing it as well. CSIRO seeks to bring Indigenous and other forms of science together to form new solutions for future challenges, including through the design of new technologies to be applied in culturally appropriate ways. Aware of Australia's settler colonial legacy and writing about symbioscience in particular, Carter et al. call for, quote, the involvement of traditional owners and broader Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities to co-develop culturally appropriate plans for the deployment of gene drives and similar technologies, recognising the key role they play in managing environments. This project was a step towards that direction. So since gene drives are still in the research and design stage, this project is a preliminary and provocative exploration of a future scenario in which gene drives might be available for future implementation in island locations that may or may not include the Torres Strait. With early engagement in mind, this project was what I called a talking project, seeking to bring two different knowledge systems into dialogue to think through new ways to address problems or endangered ecologies. So it was looking at synthetic biologies as novel and future-focused science, building on previous science within that context of settler colonialism within the Australian space, and also Indigenous knowledges, which are living and changing, but very much built on past relationships and past knowledge as well. This project is what um, Indigenous scholars Martin Nakada and Marsha Langton describe intersections between knowledge systems and concluded just recently in January. So zooming in from that large picture of the, the entire um, country of Australia with all those different language groups that I showed at the beginning, this project has started within the Torres Strait. So the Torres Strait, as you can see here, is right on the tip of Australia, sitting between Papua New Guinea and, and Cape York in Queensland as well. These are all the main islands which are occupied within that area. There were some reasons why we uh, focused on the Torres Strait. There was discussion with various um, different organisations, Indigenous organisations in other places as well. But there was really strong native title determinations here. So going back to that, that recognition of rights and interests to country and with land and sea. So there was sort of a right to sort of know people's say, say and to be engaged in it. Relatedly, there was also really strong native title representative groups, which in Australia we call prescribed body corporates. There was an interest in the research and technology. People seemed to want to have these conversations here, whereas other parts, people were a little bit unsure at this stage of talking about this technology. There's a regional diversity about this area, particularly because they are islands. So there's a lot of difference in, in feral animals, in terms of native species, in terms of the way that the islands form as well. So you can see a real difference across the Torres Strait. And climate change and biosecurity challenges are really strong here. There's a treaty between a portion of Papua New Guinea 
and a portion of the Torres Strait where people can move back and forth without visas as well. So there's a lot of movement of people. There's a lot of movement of things as well. And so there's real sort of biosecurity intensity in this region. Climate change is also having an impact. I'll talk a little bit at the end with rising waters and changes in the environment, which is impacting species up in that space. So there's community-driven approaches already, and this can hook into those discussions. And finally, as mentioned, islands are a special case of pest management, because they're seen as more containable, noting that species do still get away and sneak between islands as well. But the impact can perhaps be more measurable than in a larger mainland situation. I'd like to acknowledge uh, Gura Bharatwaral Kod, or GBK, which is the Torres Strait Sea and Land Management um, organisation that looks after all the different native tidal groups within the Torres Strait as well. So they've been fantastic in connecting us to talk with communities and to be advising on how to do this work and which area might be great to zone in on as well. So this project took a staged approach, talking a little bit about methods here. First, to scope, identify leaders, organisations as research partners, including GBK, as mentioned, and local groups. To co-design case studies in environment symbio. So while the topic of technoscience for the project, gene drives, was something introduced by myself and other colleagues because it's quite new, the choice of case study site for discussion, an island occupied by feral cats, which was causing detriment to native wildlife, including impacting the hatching of turtles in this UNESCO site, was co-designed with Indigenous and environmental organisations at the regional and local native tidal groups. So on the map, you can see different clusters with the different patches. The yellow area is what's called the central islands of the Kulkargal Nation. And within that, there's a, a red box highlighting Sassy Island. So this is the main island where people said start the discussions here and then you can build out to other communities as well. In terms of gene drive research, my understanding is things like mosquitoes and rodents are sort of much much more progressed, something like feral cats from a breeding perspective and from a sort of species perspective might be a lot slower. So it's curious that we're focusing on this rather than something which might be faster moving, but it's also listening to what people say. There are rats in this area, which they do want to eradicate, but it's seen as a particularly sacred, critical area. There's a lot of groups involved. It's seen as difficult to get out to, and people said, start with this space. There's already community concern. There's community buy-in. Let the Indigenous sort of concerns lead the way in the discussions as well. So that's something to think about when we're looking at case studies. The third part is to share knowledge, applying Indigenous biocultural knowledge and values in Symbiya through community conversations, publications and presentations. So gene drives were explained via PowerPoint presentations for larger meetings and verbal discussions for individual or group interviews. And by showing that CSIRO animation I pointed to with the QR code before. All traditional owners and community residents who partook in research spoke from their personal perspectives although some currently have or historically have held environmental and management roles and are also therefore familiar with Western scientific techniques of pest eradication. So some of the findings that came out of these discussions in group and individual format, I'm just going to sort of run through now and happy to talk further later. There were these concerns around containment. So they were a little bit different to the concerns around containment of watertight field sites as well. There was concerns around the ecosystem, the impacts that knock-on effects this might have. Well, it was explained that 
gene drives can't jump across species. People were concerned about what it might mean if an animal died in a water site, if an animal was sort of in particular spaces. There were concerns about whether islands would be closed off and people could access water or food security. These are small islands in a salty ocean. People rely on more than one island to be able to access resources, particularly during the dry season as well. There was also concerns about what this might mean in terms of opportunities for employment if gene drives were deployed. Within Australia, there's a, an Indigenous ranger program and there's a lot of Indigenous rangers who are able to work caring and looking after country or the environment in place, so near communities when there's not necessarily other sorts of roles readily available for employment. So there was a concern, are we going to be complementing this sort of work and bringing Indigenous rangers in? Or will this disrupt and actually do a counter effect of making it harder for people to find employment in their communities and have to work in other areas across Australia? There was also considerations of a spiritual nature and concerns of what this might mean and whether it was kind of going beyond what was expected of, of spiritual responsibilities. And I'll talk to that in the next slide. There was also discussions around which species should be targeted. There was discussion around totemic species, so species that are really culturally important to a group and seen as connected to a group or other native species versus introduced species. But even within an introduced species, um, there's research within Australia and within this space that some species are seen as really useful, something like pigs, a bit of a food security space, a culturally important item for ceremonial sort of exchange, including with Papua New Guineans. Um, versus something like a feral cat, which isn't eaten, is seen as really problematic, is seen as preying on native species and totemic species, and so is perhaps considered more appropriate to conduct gene drive trials on as well. Within the totemic species space, there also might be a higher appetite for risk or to consider this new technology when that species is already endangered. In the case of some turtles, because the climate is increasing and the sand temperature is increasing, there's more female hatchlings. So there's a real concern about what the future of turtles in this space might look like in terms of a larger female population and that crash um, and, and what, what might be done. So at the moment, they're talking about targeting feral cats or other animals that prey on turtle eggs, but this also might change as, as time goes on and that population becomes endangered. There was also discussion around the research values respecting and protecting and facilitating what's called Indigenous Cultural and Intellectual Property, or ICIP. Also doing early engagement, talking about benefits in the short and long term, including access and benefit sharing of knowledge, remunerating people's time and knowledge, and doing what one um, member of a particular organisation explained as a care and share approach. That's the way forward. And then there's another important question for the argument to consider. Just because we could use gene drives in the future, it doesn't mean we necessarily should. Now, this is happening within the um, larger population, but it's also happening within these discussions with Indigenous Australians in the Torres Strait. With native title and other land and sea tenure arrangements existing in Australia, Indigenous peoples can be seen as rights holders rather than stakeholders, and their rights and responsibilities should also be considered. One traditional owner explained to me that the one we're really concerned about is the LORE. It's the spiritual law. 
There are rules and we suffer the repercussions. You may be looking at the benefits, but we know the risks. The Torres Strait is also an area with historic exposure to and much uptake of Christianity, at times held in combination with other spiritual rights and responsibilities. A different traditional owner raised concerns from, quote, a biblical perspective. He called gene drives a no-no threshold to cross, fearing spiritual retribution for technological tweaking of biology. However, in a different conversation with a different traditional owner, he had a perspective that totemic and native species is problematic to consider gene drive work with, but invasive species weren't actually God's intention to be in that place and that environment. So using technology to eradicate them was seen as okay, whereas it might not be for other species, even if you're holding that Christian perspective in his opinion. So it's very complicated and needs to be sort of talked about as an ongoing place. Wherever gene drives might be trialled, ongoing and critical conversation about the larger cultural and spiritual implications of bioengineering should be undertaken, including respecting the right not to act and or to decide where to draw the line. As one Torres Strait Islander surmised, quote, the moral standard of what that is, are we conscious of what that is? Because in a sense, we're messing with creation, playing God. How far is too far? And because um, we're presenting at a GES conference, uh, a GES seminar, it's also nice to shout out to the work of um, Katie Barnhill and Jason Delborn and, and others who've been sort of looking at the um, genetically engineered American chestnut tree. And some of the concerns sort of echo these ideas of even if we have the technology, it might not be appropriate. So based on some of the work with elders um, and an environmental task force, there were concerns around that it might not be how it's supposed to be that it might be how it is supposed to be in this call. Or maybe it's the fate of the chestnut tree to become extinct. As one person stated, if those cycles include all kinds of invasive plants and all kinds of loss of species, I don't want to say it doesn't matter. It's heartbreaking and it's traumatic. But that does not change our original instructions to live within those cycles of what is on the earth now. So these questions of the right to act, but also the right not to act, and the responsibilities to witness and uh, rather than intervene might be something to consider in gene drive trials as well. Some people advocate to pause and witness rather than rewrite an environmental situation into the future. As one Torres Strait Islander explained to me, quote, we are living on the planet. Let's just take it easy. But that's science. It's curiosity. It kills the cat. Last slide. With cat killing and other curious efforts on Symbio's agenda, conversations should happen before and continue as part of future conservation efforts. The Torres Strait and other islands are bearing the brunt of rising sea levels. A warming climate threatens keystone species such as turtles, as mentioned, and enables new invasive species to spread to the region. There's real concerns of particular mosquito species moving south because of a change in climate. Symbio might offer new methods to deal with new ecological challenges, but this should be done in dialogue with and on the terms and timing of Indigenous peoples. As one traditional owner explained, the synthetic genetic approach, that it has to tie into the cultural science and go in parallel. I conclude with a final word by another traditional owner who straddled the natural scientific and spiritual worlds in his environmental management work, and who, in my opinion, unpacks the core of this cross-cultural project. In an invitation to expand my own worldviews, this traditional owner talked about his and other islanders' connections to land, to sea, to air, to cosmos. Spiritually, he said, we are connected to them. I wish you were born islander so you could know the magic and spiritual connection. 
So that's really where science hasn't gone, he concluded. But he wants it to go there. Rather than rivaling and or seeking to override other understandings, he encouraged Indigenous, Sinbio, and other forms of knowledge to start with a conversation about coexistence and co-management, how they overlap, how they complement with each other, but also how they just can destruct each other. The art, he said, is to find where the balance is. In settler colonial societies like Australia and perhaps also the US, I encourage us to unsettle and expand scientific thinking to undertake early, respectful conversations with Indigenous peoples before bioengineered and or any other conservation comes into effect. With that, thank you very much. I look forward to discussion. Just a, a gratitude again to the CSIRO funders, to GBK for their work, to GES for having me and GBIRD for conversations and discussions, um, to colleagues in, in CSIRO past and present listed on the right. And if you're interested in more information, please get in touch. My email addresses are on the bottom left. And or check out a recent publication by Torres Webb and myself that goes a little bit more into this topic and also considers things like the impacts of biosecurity in the area. It's called CARES Passageways, Cross-Cultural Considerations of Island Field Containment in the Torres Strait, and it's open access as well. Thank you very much. That was wonderful. Thank you, Kirsty. Um, as everyone, I'm going to let everyone gather their thoughts um, and prepare their questions. Uh, the way we'll run this is if you would like to ask your question directly to Kirsty, use the raise your hand function and I'll call on you. If you feel uncomfortable um, speaking, put the question in the chat and I'll read it. Uh, and then if you're also comfortable, it would be wonderful if you could turn your videos on so we can see each other for the discussion. Um, and with that, I will let... Um, I'll give a few seconds to see who has the first question. Do you like me to shop, stop sharing my slides so we can see each other as well, Jen? Or? That would be fine. You can always reshare if you need to. Yeah, no worries. Thank you. And I'd also like to shout out to Christy for getting up at 4 a.m. It's 4 a.m. in Australia tomorrow. Um, so try and undo me with your questions. It won't be very hard. <laughs> yeah. So I'll start. I, I, did, I did have a question because on the map where you were showing the islands um, and they were clustered, mm. and, and I, I think that was more of a, a political clustering based on people. And mm. I'm curious because there is gene flow of animals between islands. Mm. Have you considered... Um, looking at the way you cluster islands based on the gene flow of the animals and not just the politics of the mm. people? Really good question. Um, no, to start with, and partly because this was, so that map that I showed, which I'm happy to share the screen again if that's of value to people. Um, let me just do that. Um partly because that was a map that was presented um, through GBK. And so this is how they understand it themselves. It's not just clustered through political um, associations. It's also clustered through environmental sort of qualities as well. So the islands on the top right, uh, which you can see Uga and Arab, if the slides are showing again, um, they're volcanic soil. They're really tall. They're really different in the way that they're, they're often a very gardening culture. They're a lot... Um, 
are sort of a lot more fertile and there's a lot more abundance to grow things. This is in contrast to something like the yellow area, which is the Kulkagal Nation, um, which I was talking about, which are really low like sand sand islands and, and, and coral sort of K areas as well, which makes things like movement between islands even more critical because there's less ability to grow things, there's less ability to have sort of reliable water, historically particularly. They were known as sort of moving through the islands and so there's questions around the geography and the kind of environmental conditions forcing a different kind of sociality. And so in something like this, you know, people do go to Sassy, the island of the feral cats, to collect food for fishing or for other things as well. There's this question of even if an island's unoccupied, what might that mean for the larger kind of um, reliability? And, and because of the types of qualities of these islands and their proximity as well, this group has become sort of much more identified in that space. In terms of the animals that are coming through and the gene flows, that's a really good question. I think that they're operating a little bit differently. Something like cane toads is coming from the mainland of Australia and is causing a lot of problems. They're in the inner islands, which are down on the bottom left in red. So this is sort of where most of the main, um, main sort of stuff for food or for other materials for the Torres Strait gets, gets shipped in as well. But they're also moving to different outer islands and it's not necessarily happening in these language groups and clusters, but going to sort of where the bigger populations are as well. And there's a little bit of luck in how some areas are, are sort of being invaded by cane toads or not. There was um, verbal sort of discussion about seeing a cane toad jump off one of these ships and sort of go into an area. So maybe there is a new remapping that needs to be done and maybe that can be done along something like working with the biocultural knowledge and how it is and sort of seeing what's changing and then seeing the patterns of interactions that are occurring in that space as well. Another way to map on would be looking at the climate change implications and then seeing which invasive species are moving there as well. So starting with this base I think is important rather than doing away with it and then adding these newer stories onto that as well. Yeah, oh, that's that's good. Um, okay, so Rex uh, has asked in the chat, can you talk a little bit about the co-design process? What group mm. of stakeholders and rights holders participated in this process? Yeah, that's a great question, Rex, and um, thanks for also attending. So this one, it started by sort of a lot of conversations around what Symbio is at different levels. So going out into communities as invited by GBK, um, talking at sort of this large regional level, level with board of directors. So all the different representatives for the different native Tata groups for most of these islands that are listed on the map. Um, talking around things like how do we look after Indigenous cultural and intellectual property? What might this mean? Um, in those conversations, it was looking at who was sort of coming forward and interested in this discussion and also taking the lead, particularly from GBK, about, okay, there's already concerns happening. People are already saying they want to eradicate cats in this place. You're not starting from scratch. You're building on people's desires already. This is a technology that should be coming into discussion with other types. So there was another organisation that runs the Indigenous Ranger Program. They're already talking about whether to cull, whether to use poisons, what the approaches are there. And so we're hopping into that existing conversation. In terms of co-designed, um, Unfortunately, the, the key sort of traditional elder for that um, 
that group did not have a great year last year from a health perspective and from family members passing away. So it would have been fantastic to get some sort of a steering committee up as well. Um, but it was made very clear at meetings that that needed to be done with him as well. And so there has to be a slowness and a delay. And that's probably something to talk about as well in, in gene drives. There's this go, 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 go perspective, but we also need to slow down. And I, I recall, um, uh, there was a presentation from someone from Island Conservation last year talking about years and years and years of relationship building before you can get to this point. So I guess in terms of the co-design, you've got to do trust and relationship work. You've got to talk about what synthetic biology is because it's a very new area for a lot of people and, and you need to present and talk about that more than once, I think, so that that sort of slow knowledge can come through. And then where people think these conversations should start as well. So the co-design of Sassy as an island wasn't because it's the only island where this could be of potential use in the Torres Strait, but it's an area where there was already uptake to eradicate. There was an area where there was relatively clear ownership known. Um, it was an area which wasn't occupied consistently, although it is used as resources. And so it was an area where they thought this would be a good conversation starter and then building on the reputation from that conversation, you could spread out to other groups as well. I'm not sure if that quite answers it, um, but I think it's important to emphasise the co-design of case studies, so in this case, which island to focus on, rather than um, at the moment the co-design of gene drives. However, I think the application or any field trials would need to be considering co-design as well. And, and I know Katie and others are on the line who might have thoughts about, about this within the US context or more broadly. Um, just adding to that, the fact that there is really strong native title in this area, it's been clear which groups are for which areas, both for sea and, and for land, I think is really important because you, in my opinion, working in a place where people can say, please go away <laughs> if they don't want to be involved also helps to know if they are willing to be involved. And there is a need to get permits to visit and, and sort of do work on some of these outer islands as well. Yeah, and, and along the same lines, and you spoke a little bit about trust, but Kristen Landrill asked, um, she says, I have a related question. How mm. is trust built with the Indigenous partners in order to co-design yeah. the research? Were there any yeah. histories of prior research exploitation that needed to be addressed? And yeah. then somewhat related, but I'm going to go ahead and just put it out there in case, um, because it's also about this co-design process. Um, Jill asked, um, can you speak more to the partnership building and co-design process that took place mm. in designing your case studies? Mm. How prescriptive was the initial direction from the funding agencies? And how yep. much room was there to collaborate with the Torres Strait Indigenous peoples? Yeah, great questions. And then I, I know Katie has a um, hand up which might comment and touch on this as well. Um, so in terms of the approach, this, to my knowledge, hadn't been sort of really a point of conversation in the Australian context. I think this postdoc was a little bit new in that space. There was considering sort of public concerns around Symbio, but not, not specifically Indigenous Australians. Um, from an ethics and from a project approach, I tried to stage it. So the first part of ethics was to literally start talking to people, not to start gathering information, but to start talking to people, to start figuring out 
who should be involved, which organisations should be involved, what's the process. I was also really lucky to have Taurus Webb, um, who I've, I've mentioned, join as well. So he's from Arab, which is from the upper um, the upper eastern area. But he was really critical to be going, you know, you need to do it this way. You need to make sure that you're talking about this. Talk to me about how to explain Symbi. What does this mean? Making sure there was that kind of contrast or not contrast but sort of translation I guess of the science into into what's already happening on the ground um, and that probably took about a year that scoping and then based on that the second stage of sort of data collection of people's perspectives people's approaches which area to focus on came about as well and that was a second stage in the ethics application within CSIRO um, making sure that people understand in in place in sort of ways that are comfortable. So Taurus was excellent at speaking a little bit of Creole and sort of talking about the technology um, in, in language that's really comfortable in that area as well. Um, and I think, yeah, also building trust. Uh, there was a really good question, I think it was from Kristen or Kirsten. Um, yes, there are concerns and people talk about being over-consulted over and really exhausted that, you know, researchers come and they don't come back. Through this project, I did try to come multiple times. I have offered to try and um, continue to come up uh, subject to ability, even though I'm in a new role as well. Um, that's very tricky, making sure that you return information. So all people that partook in interviews got their information back, got sort of the participant information sheet, got it checked. And a few people said, oh, no, take that out. Or no, this is this is more important to say as well. Um, and any, any meetings that we did, making sure that information was shared back. So that's a way, I guess, to slowly build trust and to make sure that people still have say about what is what is coming out as well. And that article, we sort of sent it to GBK and said, if you have concerns or, you know, input, please let us know as well. I think they were very busy with a day job. Um, but, you know, making sure that they're sort of brought along in that process. Should I go? <laughs> um, can you hear me? Yes. Great. Sorry, I'm in a weird setup, so I wanted to confirm. Thanks for joining us at 4 a.m. Um, great presentation. Um, good to see you. I, Eleanor still asked about you. Um, oh, lovely. <laughs> uh, I had two questions and hopefully they're short. Um, well, we'll see. One, could you, at the very end of your presentation, you said something about a share and care like framework mm. or, or approach. Could you, I, I didn't jot it down. Could you say a bit yeah, more yeah. about that or what the actual phrasing is? Yeah, yep. So that was in relation to what benefits could come. And I think this is a really important and hard part of early, early conversations and engagement. Some areas in another part of Australia, people basically said we're worried about consultation fatigue. There is that cynicism that was referenced around other research projects prior. What's the benefit? And, you know, there's this really wonderful lofty um, potentially massive benefits of gene drives in terms of changing the environment and getting rid of invasive species and or boosting species that are sort of their population is at risk. Well, that's, that's potentially years away. So how do you make sure that people are kind of being listened to and, and brought into this space now? Care and share approaches might mean conversations. So um, whether to pay people for their time um, in interviews, at the end of the interview, I'd give a supermarket voucher, sort of just acknowledging that people could have been working in other areas. Not everyone's on a full-time job. Um, 
there's also making sure that the information goes back so they can utilise that and, and build that for other cases if they're trying to do other things. Um, and there's also discussion about what could be done in terms of a training perspective as well. You know, in, is there is there skill sets that Indigenous rangers or others could build so that they could actually be monitoring sort of what's happening um, in place if a gene drive was 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 shown as well? Is there opportunities for younger people to be coming and learning? CSIRO is build an Indigenous graduate program so that Indigenous scholars coming through from honours and up can... Um, basically kind of work as full-time employees at CSIRO while getting their qualifications and being hooked into projects so that you're building this pipeline of people to work in this space. But how do we make sure that that also happens in a place like the Torres Strait, not in universities where people might have to leave this area? So that care and share is a little bit about sharing and looking after information and recognising that that's a resource and making sure that people are sort of getting benefits in the short term while these bigger picture, longer term benefits are discussed. Because, and I think I raised this um, in conversations with a few individuals, there's also a risk of, of kind of wasting time, you know, and this I would say is, is a public, public engagement risk in general, that when you're working in an area where government researchers have been known for talking about projects and nothing happening um, with Indigenous communities, you're definitely not starting from a central perspective. So thinking about what are the some things, what are some of the things that can be done now while we look at that bigger picture? And also, I guess, sharing all the presentations that I did, making sure information was going back to organisers, to communities in hard copy and other forms so that they can follow up with that, if that makes sense as well. Um, thank you. That's really interesting. I've not heard that phrasing before. I like it a lot. Um, and my next question, we may not have en um, enough time may not have yet passed for this to bear out. But to your knowledge, has the referendum vote in late fall this last year had a chilling effect on any of this on, on willingness to engage on just collaborative or co-design or any of those mm. potential, you know, paths forward that I think are We've got some good evidence we're making headway on, but then we have mm. results of the referendum. So I was just wondering if you know of any uh, chilling effect yet. Yeah, good question. And not being a political scientist. Um, so the Torres Strait, I think it was about 70% of the Torres Strait voted yes. And so the referendum for background for people was whether to sort of have a particular line in the constitution acknowledging our first First Nations people, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, and also to set up a, a body um, to have a voice particularly on Indigenous issues to, to government. And it did not pass. And it was very, you know, I, I have Indigenous, I know Indigenous colleagues who voted no, but I also know a lot of Indigenous colleagues who voted yes. And this particular region in Australia was a, was a majority yes vote, even though overall for the country, the vote came down to a no. So you're right. And there's been a lot of sadness, exhaustion, I think people are really thinking about where they apply their time and energy. I've been talking to colleagues at CSIRO and they're going, well, I'm going to be really careful what projects I work on because I want to make sure it's it's good for mob because, yeah, there is, you know, it's exhausting and you're building, you're building trust and you don't want that trust to be damaged in a process as well. So I do think there has been a cooling off, which would tie into the end of this project as well as, um, some some key deaths in the community as well. So there had been a plan for a final 
field visit, bringing um, a synthetic biologist at the request of community as well to, to kind of be the meat in the sandwich, bring Indigenous knowledge and symbio knowledge kind of much more directly together and importantly do that out on country rather than via a Zoom or bringing people into a lab in a capital city as well. Um, that hasn't happened and I do think that the referendum had a had a part to play. And that's another thing to, to look at. That's on the terms and timing of people, you know, being sensitive to this is one of many issues. This is an abstract issue at the moment. If you're fighting for things that have a real immediate and, and hard deadline, respecting that those things will take sort of priority as well. So I think this is the challenge. We're playing a long game. And you have to start early with relationships, but you also have to kind of work around the timing of much bigger context for communities. I'm not sure if that answers it, but I think it did impact. Okay. We have just about four minutes left, and Max Scott wrote in the chat, CSIRO and OxyTech announced a partnership last year to use OxyTech's friendly 80s albacus in the Torres Islands. This is not a gene drive, but... Uh, GM movies that only mosquitoes that only produce mm -hmm. males. Um, what has been the reaction in the Torres Islands to the potential release of these um, oxygen? Yeah, yep. So I haven't been involved in that project. I am aware of it. Torres is on it again. That's partly to make sure that it's done in culturally appropriate ways um, as well. I think there was interest, particularly in the sort of commercial side as well, but I think the process was a little bit slow and there was an emphasis again on relationship building prior to other things. Um, it's a good question. I can't comment more than that because I haven't been directly involved in the project. Um, but I think some of these learnings and some of the work that Torres has been doing on this project, which is a lot slower and a lot more sort of what, what species do you want to work on can be moving into that space which with Oxitex and CSIRO and something that's a little bit more um, tangible perhaps as well. Okay, great. And we are just about done with the hours. So if everyone would help me thank Kirsty for coming and waking up so early and giving a very informative talk. Thank you so much. Um, it was very, very good. And I just want to draw people's attention. There are two related symposium or colloquium, sorry, um, listed in the chat uh, that you should check out. One is exploring synergies, overlapping international dialogue on invasive alien species removal on islands with synthetic synthetic biology that was presented by Carolina Torres uh, mm. last semester. And the other is From Containment to Connectivity, an Oceanic Approach to Gene Drive Governance by Riley Taiting Fong, um, Native Nations from the Native Nations Institute, University of Arizona, which was also last semester. And the links are there to the videos. And Riley actually joined us today. So thank you for coming, Riley. Um, and then lots of people have Thank you. Um, so check out the chat. And then for next week, we will be in person, but also um, have the Zoom option available if you're unable to attend in person. And our speaker will be Helen Ann Curry. She is a historian at Georgia Tech, and she will be talking about local seeds, global needs, and the history of agrobiodiversity conservation. So we will see you next week. And thank you for joining us and participating today. Bye, it's a privilege to present to such a knowledgeable niche and um, related area. So thank you all as well. I'm so glad you were able to come, Christy. Thank you. Thank you.